a Scandinavian Airlines MD-81 is on its way to Warsaw, Poland when catastrophe strikes. What caused this plane to crash shortly after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And once again, I'm not Nick. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. You guys know Brendan's covering for Nick, so. He's I'm just sorry if you're new here. This is normal. Any housekeeping? Uh, your summer vacation stories for June? Please Thanks. send those in. You can send those in on our website. You can also email them if that is what you prefer, for whatever reason. Yes. Check out our merchandise. We talked about that a little bit last time. We added a couple things to the store. We added... Puzzles. Coasters. A wireless charger and a bumper sticker. Bumper sticker I'm excited for. If you buy something, you're cool. <laughs> if you don't buy something, you might be cool depending on where you live. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On I, that note. What are we covering today, Brendan? This is Scandinavian Airlines Flight 751. Thank you to... Marie. Marie for recommending this flight. This incident occurred on December 27th, 1991, two days after Christmas. That's unfortunate. This was a Douglas DC-9-81, or more commonly referred to as the MD-81. It is a stretch version of the DC-9. Fancy. The aircraft was registered Oscar Yankee-Kilo Hotel Oscar, which is a Danish registration. Fancy. Very Fancy. This was a regularly scheduled Scandinavian Airlines flight from Stockholm, Sweden to Warsaw, Poland via Copenhagen, Denmark. Copenhagen? Copenhagen. <laughs> the captain for today's flight is Captain Stefan Rasmussen, age 44, 8,020 hours. Total time, he will be our pilot flying for today's flight. First officer, Ulf Sedemark, age 34, had 3,015 hours of total time. He will be the pilot monitoring. This flight had 123 passengers and 6 crew. The accident plane landed at Stockholm Orlando Airport the night before around 10pm, arriving from Zurich. During that particular flight to Stockholm from Zurich, the outside air temperature was about negative 53 to negative 62 degrees Celsius. Cold. That is pertinent later. Yeah, up at cruising altitude, not, uh, not at on, the ground. on the ground. That would be um, catastrophic. <laughs> The end of the world is near. In Fahrenheit, that's what? Like negative... Something gross. 70. <laughs> negative 80. Yeah. Negative 79.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Ooh, that's cold. That is very cold. I mean, at that altitude, it's not totally uncommon. How, you're also altitudes. not outside at that altitude. Right. Yeah, you're right. Unless something happens to the plane, and then that's unfortunate. Yeah. Refer to previous episodes. Like, aloha. Upon arriving at the Stockholm airport, the aircraft had 2,550 kilograms, or, I did the math here for you, 3,180 liters, or 840 pounds of fuel in each, or was that gallons? Oh, no. <laughs> I think I converted it to gallons. It's 60% full of fuel. Yeah, there was quite a bit of fuel. In the aircraft. In each tank. They're, yeah, they both were... Yeah, okay. Moving on. <laughs> this is why the Gimli Glider happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
exactly why it happened. If if I was in charge of the Gimli Lighter, we wouldn't, wouldn't have got off the ground. <laughs> I would still be doing the math for it. The aircraft was parked at the gate overnight. Temps around zero degrees Celsius, or freezing, for water. Yes. In the morning, a mechanic found that frost had covered the underside of the wing, and upon closer inspection, he found the upper side of the wing was covered in slush. The aircraft was loaded with an additional 1,400 kilograms of fuel. I did not do the calculations for this one. And was ready to be de-iced at 8.30 a.m. The mechanic, after speaking to the captain, ordered for de-ice on the underside of the wing due to the frost. A total of 850 liters of de-icing fluid was used to clear the wings. Did they de-ice the upper part, too? Hmm. Yeah, you know? Yes, they, they did. Let me see if it covers, okay. gets okay. covered here. I believe it does. The mechanic reported to the captain, Yes, de-icing finished. During the engine startup procedure, the captain asked, And they've got it good and clear under the wing? The answer was, Yes, there was a lot of ice and snow. Now it's fine. It's perfect now. This part of the conversation between the captain and the mechanic ended with the captain saying, That sounds fine then. Thanks. Okay, so I do want to go into that a little bit more. So the captain did a walk around after the first de-icing, and he and the head technician both saw that there was still ice on the top of the wing, so they did a second de-icing, and the captain was assured then that it was fine. Okay. So, it was de-iced twice. Yes. During the de-icing process, the captain ran checks and completed briefings, including the briefing for an engine failure, at which he stated, engine failure follow 2000. That is very general. I'm assuming he's not what? referring to the generalicity. Is that a generality? word? Generality. Generality of the engine failure procedure. Uh, so I assume. follow the general procedure. I guess so. Okay. After the engine start, the crew taxis out to runway 08. The engine deicing systems were on for both engines, and there was no indication of a malfunction, which is a good thing, especially okay. when it's this cold. The captain taxied slowly due to the weather. There was snow on the ground that he had to avoid. They did not clear the taxiways. Makes sense. Does it? If you let well, me not that they didn't clear the taxiways, but that he had to go slow because there was snow. Yes. The taxi took approximately two and a half minutes to reach the runway. Still not too long. They began the takeoff roll and rotated off the ground at 8.47 a.m. At this point, several passengers noticed ice coming off the upper side of the wing. Oh, that's not good. The captain also heard a abnormal noise, sounding like a low hum, mm-hmm. which he could not identify. 25 seconds after taking off, bangs, vibrations, and jerks were perceived in the aircraft. The jerks were experienced as heavenly repeated barks. Should I do that one as well? Please don't. Bar- <laughs> bark, bark. <laughs> well, to be fair, it's more like a woomph, woomph, woomph. Yes, that woomph, actually is woomph, pretty accurate. Woomph. Yes. See? Good job. All-around listener experience right here. (laughs) Shockingly, the pilots realized this was a malfunction of the right engine by looking at the engine instruments. Wow! (laughs) You're you're joking! (laughs) There's a reason why that's brought up, though. Because the first officer said, Think it's a compressor stall. The captain stated that because of the vibrations and the rapid changes in the digital presentation... He had difficulty reading the engine instruments. 
He was used to the DC-9, which had the standard analog gauges, mm. and the new MD-81 had digital gauges. Oh. So he was not totally familiar with this aircraft. In this capacity. Yes. As well as a few other things, which we will bring up later. The captain reduced power a bit, but the malfunction continued in the engine. Despite reducing power, the engines oddly had increased power after a few moments. However, this went unnoticed by the pilots. At this point, the altitude was approximately 2,000 feet above the ground, and 43 seconds had passed since rotation. I do want to say something that was in the Air Disasters episode that has not been mentioned thus far, but becomes pertinent later. When the passengers were boarding, the crew had left the heater on in the cabin, so it was really freaking hot. And so everyone had taken off their coats and everything because they were just burning alive, basically. That's pertinent later. By 64 seconds after rotation, the left engine began to surge, but the pilots also didn't realize this. This is probably due to the fact that there are lots of bells and whistles shouting at them, lots of flashy buttons also flashing at them. Flashy buttons. (laughs) I mean, he's not wrong. Yes, it's just... I find that funny. 76 seconds after rotation, the right engine failed, shortly followed by the left-hand engine. The aircraft reached its maximum altitude of 3,300 feet. Only after both engines had failed did the first officer notice the warning indications from the engine instruments and saw that the outlet temperatures were over 800 degrees Celsius. For reference, maximum engine temperature should be about 680 degrees Celsius. So they overheated. They, They were extremely hot. The left engine's on fire. Not long after the engine failure, the Electronic Flight Instrument System, the EFIS, or the IFIS, went dead for the rest of the flight. That's basically their engine instrument display. It went dark. Their instrument panel. Yes. Along with the cabin, as it turns out. Well, yeah, because there's no power going to the airplane. Yeah. No engines, no power. No power. Correct. A fire warning was given for the left engine. The first officer activated the fire extinguisher system for that engine as gray smoke was noticed in the forward part of the aircraft. So there was an engine fire. Smoke. It is worth noting that the first officer did hesitate slightly before pulling the fire extinguisher for the left engine. Because once you pull the fire extinguisher, you have no hopes of reigniting that engine. So they are already in a bad situation trying to reignite the engines. If you pull the fire extinguisher, you have permanently lost that engine, and they only had hope after that of restarting the right engine. Yes. A flight attendant seeing the rear of the aircraft was notified by a captain traveling privately that the engines were surging. She notified the purser, who also notified the captain. Another captain, who was sitting in seat 2C, went up to the flight deck, because they actually had the flight deck door open, Because it's before 9-11 and no one really cared. Right. The first officer gave him the emergency checklist for engine failure. And the captain told him to start the APU, or the auxiliary power unit. The assistant captain, about two minutes and two seconds after rotation, said, Look straight ahead, urging the captain several times to look straight ahead. He was focused on... Landing. Landing the plane and... The captain was, you know, also trying to solve for trying to figure out what the heck is going on with his airplane, right? And 
So the assisting captain was making sure the actual captain was focused on, you need to land, let the first officer try to restart the engine, I'm starting the APU, which he did eventually do. Is this the one that was sitting in first class? In first class and came up? Yes. Okay. Assuming they had a first class, I don't actually know. Or at the front of the plane. He was in the second row, so it was really quick for him to get into the cockpit. All right. The regular captain was gliding the plane with a slight left-hand bank and stopped on a roughly north heading. The first officer notified Stockholm Control that they were experiencing engine problems and asked to return to the airport. ATC ordered for a right turn, but the captain continued to fly in that northern heading. The captain called several times, prepare for on-ground emergency. The order was passed aft once the assistant captain uh, notified the purser to make the announcement over the PA system. There we go. When the aircraft was approximately 420 meters above the ground, and still in the clouds, I should mention that they were pretty much in the clouds this entire time, the assistant captain started gradually extending the flaps. Now, this was basically uncommanded by the actual crew. He just started to do it because he was rather well experienced in this sort of problem. Problem. He's gone over the checklist and kind of made his own little checklist for it. And he knew, he knew at that point they needed to start adding flaps. At a height of approximately 340 meters, 1,100 feet, the captain said, Flaps, uh, uh... Whereupon this assistant captain answered, yes, we have flaps. We have flaps. Look straight ahead. Look straight ahead. Focus. I got this. <laughs> <laughs> then the aircraft was entirely through the clouds about 300 to 250 meters. That's uh, roughly 800 to 1,000 feet above the ground. The captain chose to attempt an emergency landing in a field more or less in the general direction of flight northeast of the airport. He basically had a choice of a small field kind of right in his flight path or kind of a further one off the or bigger field kind of off the flight path. He chose this smaller one. Okay. 17 seconds before the aircraft struck the ground, the first officer asked, shall we get the wheels down? This was answered by the assistant captain and he said, yes, gear down, gear down. Eight seconds later, when the height was 56 meters above the ground, the first officer reported to Stockholm Control and Stockholm SK-751, we are crashing into the ground now. That's unfortunate. Yes, and that was, of course, in Swedish. Yep. The flight attendant who was sitting in the back of the plane was interviewed for the, I think it was a Mayday episode, and said, I knew that this was going to be a hard landing. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> a further seven seconds later, the plane began to impact trees. By the time they did start to impact the trees, the landing gear had just become extended and locked. And a major portion of the right wing was torn off the aircraft, and it began to bank to the right. Four minutes and seven seconds after rotation, the aircraft hits a sloping ground with the tail first in a 40-degree bank. The aircraft slid along the ground for 110 meters before coming to a complete stop. The fuselage was broken into three pieces on impact and during the subsequent uh, breaking along the ground. However, there was no fire despite being loaded up with a lot Bunch of, fuel. of fuel. All 129 souls on board survived. Except for four people, everyone was able to make it outside the aircraft on their own power. 
They had to go back and fish those other people out. One of which was the assistant captain. Yes. Because... So the assistant captain had to... Well, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Well, the, the purser was like, you need to get in a seat right now. And then he just dived into the galley and laid on the floor. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so he he was knocked unconscious during the the impact. Which makes sense. And he was pulled from the wreckage by medical professionals. Yes. Many I'm... of the passengers, once they exited the cabin, were freezing and experiencing symptoms of hypothermia. Because they had removed their coats from the very hot cabin earlier, and many of them actually weren't even wearing shoes. Friends. Now, to be fair, I do believe that even if it wasn't, like, freaking hot in the cabin, they probably would have still taken their jackets off. Because that's, yeah. that's, I mean, you wouldn't wear your jacket in a... But the flight attendant who was interviewed said specifically many of them were wearing very thin t-shirts. And she was doing whatever, like, she took off her jacket, put it around a passenger. She was hugging them, making sure, trying to keep them warm. Because I think it was about 20 minutes before medical crews arrived. I believe there were four, three exits blocked? Three or four. I think it's in the findings. I, yeah, I, I, I'll look at that later. Most of the passengers exited through the brakes in the fuselage. Which makes sense, because they're Open. broken. So why not? <laughs> yep. Also, fuselages, as we've covered before, usually break into three parts when stuff like this happens. It's just the way they're made. Yeah. So You see, there's the part behind the wings, the wings, and the part in front of the wings, basically. Yeah, that's usually how it breaks up, too. And there is no wing on the No, there's <laughs> no <right> wings. <laughs> so they landed 15 kilometers northeast of the airport that they took off from. More about the assisting captain. He had cut his eyelid Ouch. in as one of his injuries and his collarbone was broken. So his shoulder was in front of him. <gasps> oh. Lovely details. Um, eight passengers were seriously injured. I believe one experienced a disabling serious injury, but mm. they did not elaborate further on that. And the captain reported that he was the ca happiest captain in the world, having an entire plane live. Yeah. No Which is joke. a big deal. Oh, I want one. I need to know why this plane crashed. Okay, so <laughs> this investigation was performed by the Swedish Accident Investigation Board, or the SAIB, or the SHK. Oh hell yeah! SHK is the abbreviation for whatever it is in Swedish. Ah, so I've heard both abbreviations. With the assistance of the Swedish Civil Aviation Administration, the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, of the United States, and the Aircraft Accident Investigation Board, or the AAIB, of Denmark. Both black boxes were recovered, and we will come back to those in a second. Because of the very fortunate circumstances of everyone surviving, investigators were able to get a lot of interviews regarding the flight. Both crew and passengers reported the loud booming sounds from the engines and the subsequent loss of power. Passengers and, and cabin crew also reported the smoke in the cabin. The loud booming sounds were also heard on the CVR and were determined to be engine surges, as Brendan had mentioned earlier. We previously discussed engine surging in episode 54 with Southern Airways Flight 242. Miranda, can you explain engine surging? Okay, I'm going to do my best, friends, because I don't know if you can do math, but that was like 30 episodes ago. Basically, when engines, I mean, at least for the Southern, Air, Southern Airways mm -hmm. flight, it ingested a shit ton of water and um, hail. hail, or as I like to call it, Solid water. I Solid believe is water. what you said earlier. 
Solid water. Solid, Solid water. Solid, man. And when it gets too much for the engine, it flames out, basically. So what happens specifically, engines require a steady airflow. And when, and for whatever reason, that's... the airflow. What, whenever that's disrupted, the fuel in the combu- combustion section of the engine will combust forward instead. Mm. So it starts causing flames to come out the front of the engine so the in bursts talk about the compressor stall yes yeah because that's when the the compression blades behind the intake blades stop moving due to the high pressure which means and low airflow yeah the air is not actually now moving through the engine so when the pressure builds up enough it just kind of pops yep and gives out yes which is why they were that's the so hot the blades the fans stall. They stop moving. That's why it's called a... In the compressor section. That's why it's a compressor stall. Yep. Boom. So... Names. Science. <laughs> Unlike in Flight 242, though, there wasn't heavy precipitation during this flight. So, what could have disrupted the airflow to the engines? Can I guess? Sure. There was still ice and stuff on the wing. Did it fly back into the engines? Let's get into it a little bit. Okay. So, first, investigators had to find the rest of the engines. It's kind of hard to tell from the picture of the wreckage, but those engines are pretty much beat to crap. There were a lot of pieces missing, so investigators had to spend a ton of time finding the pieces. They used the flight data recorder data to map out where best to search along the 15-kilometer flight path and went to work. They recovered about 500 individual pieces, which was nowhere near everything. It was about 30%, but it was enough. The engines were examined by the Scandinavian Aero Engines Services with the goals of mapping the damage, analyzing the reason for failure, and determining whether or not the fault existed prior to the accident. So, you may recall that the left engine was on fire and had to be put out. As a symptom of just how bad that fire was, the titanium fan blades in the engine showed evidence of fire. Now, I'm not just talking like, oh, they were covered in soot or something. No, I mean the titanium itself caught fire. Like it melted? No, like it, the titanium was, have you ever lit a strip of magnesium on fire? You can do that. Turns out you can also do that with titanium at super high temperatures. At what temperature does titanium light on fire? What did you say? Over 800 degrees Celsius? Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there. (laughs) Such a fire needed something to fuel it. And in this case, it was a fuel. Fuel? Because they had In an engine? (laughs) Investigators took a look at the fuel duct and found a 22-millimeter long fissure in a welded seam which was spewing fuel and fueling the fire. When metallurgists examined the part, they found the fissure to have burst open from impact on the other side of the pipe. And because the engine fire happened in the air, the impact was not from impact with the ground. Something flew into the engine. What other damage might that have caused? And what kind of damage would cause engine surging also? Engines require a steady airflow, as I had mentioned, and that airflow is provided by the multiple fans in the engine. Upon analyzing the fan stage of the left engine, investigators found... a lot. Of the 34 fan blades, 8 of them had damage on the leading edge of the blade, some with damage as long as 50 millimeters and as deep as 15 millimeters. The damage was not consistent with hard object damage, such as metal or stones, but rather more consistent with soft object damage. Similar damage was found on seven fan blades in the right engine. Now, Miranda, what did you guess flew into the engine that is relatively soft? Slush. And ice. And ice. Correct. 
Given the weather and circumstances of the day, investigators pursued the theory of ice. The previous flight on this plane had flown in from Zurich and landed with its fuel tanks at 60% full and very, very cold, estimated to be about negative 25 degrees Celsius, a temperature cold enough to chill the upper surface of the wing, even though the temperature outside was just above freezing. But we knew that there was ice from overnight. The flight technician who inspected the plane saw it, and so had the captain, the person who was responsible for making sure that they are sufficiently de-iced to take off. You might recall that they were de-iced once, and then the captain did a walk around with the head technician and determined it needed to be de-iced again, so they were de-iced a second time. There shouldn't have been any remaining ice, especially since the technician did not discover any. However, these conditions were perfect for the development of clear ice, a phenomenon that had been known on the DC-9 and other planes. It's hard to detect with just the eye because it's, uh, clear. clear? Yeah, it's like black ice on yeah. the road. It's like the fancy ice that good bartenders put in your drink. <laughs> it's transparent, basically. The technician said that he had examined the leading edge of the wing near the fuselage by touch and did not find any ice. Why is this a problem? He didn't check any further aft than what he could reach from his ladder at the leading edge. Yeah, that's not great. Per the investigators, quote, To be able to carry out an effective examination, it would have been necessary for the mechanic to have gone out onto the wing. End quote. Yeah. He would have slipped and fell off. Yes. And then he would have known. There's <laughs> ice there. He probably would have been dead, and no one would have known, and they would have taken off with the ice anyway, so it didn't matter. That was morbid. Okay, there, there were two sides to that story. <laughs> so, and look, no one was killed, so no harm, no foul, right? And there was harm, <laughs> but no one died. Yeah. Because of the nature of having tail-mounted engines, planes such as the DC-9 and the MD-80 series had been known to have foreign object damage, or FOD, from ice flying off the wing near the fuselage and into the engines, as Miranda so aptly predicted. Yeah, well, um, also, if you don't know, the engines are tail-mounted engines, or they're, they're mounted behind the wings, they're not on the wings, which is why I guess that. Good job. Using my detective skills. Stealing my thunder really early. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, that's, that's what we do, we just steal your thunder for this episode. I know. <laughs> the manufacturer had many, many service bulletins issued over the years with actions to mitigate this risk. The board, however, found that the line maintenance handbook for the mechanics and technicians did not provide detailed enough instruction on how to check for clear ice, nor was there any oversight by management to ensure the check was performed correctly. Furthermore, they didn't have the means to inspect the top of the very slick wing. It usually requires a special kind of ladder. So the sequence of events. As the crew took off with the ice on their wing, the wings flexed with the new loading of being in the air breaking the ice off, which then flew backward into the tail-mounted engines, causing damage to the leading edge of the fan blades and causing engine surges as well as the fire in the left engine when ice caused damage to the fuel system, which leaked fuel into the hot engine. So we know how the engine surged, caught fire, etc. But I also just said that the manufacturer released many service bulletins to mitigate the risk of ice coming off the wing and damaging the engine to the point of failure, a type of damage called foreign object damage or FOD. The result of these service bulletins is that the engines should have been able to continue flying if the crew performed the proper procedure. FOD did not explain why both engines flamed out eventually. So now we delve into if the crew did something wrong. Was this a matter of pilot error? Miranda, do you remember the correct action the crew should do during engine surges? 
pull them back to idle. Good job. I'm proud of you. <laughs> so well, they don't have to go to idle. It, well, they well, don't have to be in climb power though, or take right. off power. They need to be lowered so that the, the, the they can stop. get their. I actually have air in the engine. The exact checklist that was. That? I know. Look at me go. Let me read off the engine surging and popping and forward thrust checklist, which is indicated by a fluctuating or high EGT, the N1 or N2 fluctuating or popping or surging sounds. The auto throttle switch should be switched to off. The throttle of the affected engine, in this case, both of them, should be reduced to idle if required. There we go. And then... The crew should check if the surging or popping continues. If so, continue with the checklist. The engine ignition switch should be set to ground start and continue, I'm assuming is what that is. Yeah. The engine anti-ice switches should be set to on. The pneumatic X-speed valve lever of the affected side should be opened. The airfoil anti-ice switches should be turned on. The throttle should be slowly advanced and then determine from the condition going forward how to proceed. I also covered this in the Munich disaster for my Miranda so Yes, you did. Go check that out on Patreon. Patreon. There's your little plug. <laughs> and the rest of the procedure, which I is like one step, is if it continues, shut down the engine. Which makes sense. So, here's the problem with the checklist, though. If you aren't trained on when you need it, you won't call for it. And that was a large factor in the problem here. Oh. Quote, there was no simulator or other training on the engine surging problem. The lack of such training and the circumstance that action in the event of engine surging were not by heart items in the emergency malfunction checklist explain why the pilots did not take adequate action. End quote. Yeah, if you don't know when you're su- like... If this happens, here's this checklist. How are you supposed to know to use the checklist? They were not trained to detect engine surging. Now, yeah. the first officer guessed. No, so the well, first, eventually someone came up and said so that, the right? The first officer knew it was a compressor stall because he had flown in the military before on a certain fighter jet, which was prone to engine surges. And they also trained for it in the military, I guess, in Sweden. So he was familiar with the incident, the engine surging. Phenomenon. So... While the captain was not. Not. Which is why they did not proceed with the checklist. Anyway, the overarching theme in the checklist is that you should reduce engine power. And the flight data recorder picked up that the captain had indeed done just that, despite not being trained to do it. However, the throttle lever was reduced by about 10%. So why didn't the problem resolve itself? You might also recall that the crew then heard the engines and saw on their instruments that engine performance increased despite the lowered throttle setting. This baffled investigators for like two months. They had no idea why the engine would do that. Until they learned of a safety feature that the manufacturer had implemented on Scandinavian Airlines DC-9s. The new safety feature was called Automatic Thrust Restoration, or ATR. It had been developed as many pilots following the noise abatement protocols, reduced engine power during takeoff if they were over a residential neighborhood, but sometimes the pilots would pull power back too much to the point of being dangerous. The ATR made it so that the onboard computer would know what was too low and too dangerous of a throttle setting and would increase power if it went below that limit on takeoff. Oh, Lord. When the accident aircraft passed 350 feet above the ground and the captain pulled the throttles back, 
he fulfilled the computer's requirements and it increased engine power, the opposite of what you should do when your engine is surging. Yeah, that's probably not um, a great safety to have on there. I mean, it's like half half dozen. Like, well, yeah, it's supposed to work in your advantage because it's supposed to prevent you from stalling the aircraft. Exactly. But in this case, it actually hurt the problem. Yep. Yeah. It worse. Quote, when approving ATR, the FAA of the United States, for the record, did not foresee that this system could be activated by an engine surge and cause increased throttle to the surging engine. The risk was first noticed in connection with this accident, which caused the FAA to issue an airworthiness directive. End quote. Be like, please don't do that. Investigators also thought it should be possible to deactivate the ATR for any airline that does not use such noise abatement procedures. Yeah, that would probably be a good idea. Well, why didn't the crews just deactivate the ATR themselves? Here's the worst part. Worse than the actions of the ATR itself. The crew had no idea what the ATR was or that it was installed on the plane. And even worse than that, I don't know if you talk about it. Neither did the airline. The airline did had no idea that it existed. <laughs> the f- Why are you flying an airplane you don't know everything? I mean... So this is the part that I couldn't really find in the report. It said it in the Mayday episode that it's. it sounds like the ATR was implemented along with another system. So it was kind of just snuck in there. And so the airlines didn't know about it. They didn't train their pilots on how to use it, how to turn it off, anything like that. Uh, unless the airline goes through the manuals from Douglas, they would have no way of actually knowing it. And once again, they made it as a safety feature. So it didn't really matter if you knew about it or not. Yeah, but it would have helped. In yeah. this case, in this, yes. In this one-off case. Right. So the ATR activated and increased the engine power without the pilots being aware that that was what was happening, and the surges got worse, causing further damage to the trailing edge of every single fan blade in both engines, eventually leading to the loss of power in both engines. Which makes sense. When you push something past its limits, it will eventually quit. Yep. It'll go, yeah, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And shut off. All right. We're going to take a brick break. A small brick break, and we'll be back. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that commercial about something great, which, which we got money for, so <laughs> it's worth it. All right, let's see what they found in this accident. Shocker, the pilots and flight crew were qualified to perform this flight. Shocker. Also... They found the aircraft was airworthy. Also shocker. (laughs) (laughs) They found clear ice formed on the upper surface of the wings overnight. They found the slush, but the clear ice was not discovered during the check made before the aircraft was de-iced. So, here's my question. I don't know if you guys can answer this. Mm -hmm. But they did de-ice it twice. Yes. It's kind of surprising to me if they de-iced it twice while there was still ice on it. They probably just needed to de-ice it more. Mm Mm-hmm. Or spray it more. And they also did check if the de-icing liquid was faulty, and it was not, before you 
ask that question. Thanks. Yeah, I think it was like 80-something degrees Fahrenheit, so should have been... Well, and then the chemical... The chemical com- mixture with water right. that it came was, up in Air Florida Flight 90, so it, I would have asked. But. It was fine. It was okay. fine. It was fine. <laughs> they found that the icing carried out before the flight did not remove the clear ice from the wings. There you go. <laughs> they found the company's instructions, routines, and equipment were insufficient for ensuring the discovery and removal of clear ice. This is weird, because the wing of the DC-9 slash MD-81 is not that high... Like, the wing would probably be, like, right above my head standing up. So, standing on a ladder, you should be able to see the top of the wing. I don't know if you have, like, a step stool. <laughs> so, jump, like a- jumping ahead a little bit, investigators did say that the only way to check for sure that there's no clear ice is to put your hand on the entire wing, just rub all over the wing, and make sure there's no ice. So, looking at it doesn't do diddly squat. Hmm. I guess you gotta get your arm up there. Because you did just feel the front end, that's where you felt the slush, because it wasn't as cold. Yeah. Because no, there wasn't fuel in that part of the Of the wing. Because it's flaps the slats. and slats. Yep. Or flaps are in the back, slats are in the front. You got it. They found that on liftoff, clear ice was broken off the wing and ingested into the engines, damaging the engine fan stages. The compressor stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also, the, I guess the intake would take a good portion of that as well. They found damage led to the engine surging on the right-hand engine. Yes. That would make sense. They found the pilots had insufficient knowledge and training to enable them to identify the malfunction and take necessary action. No. The pilots did not use the emergency malfunction checklist. No. Well, it turns out if you're not trained for it, you don't do it. Weird. Or you can't identify what the heck's going on. (laughs) They found that without the pilots noticing it, the engine power was increased automatically using the effect of ATR. Automatic thrust restoration. Thrust restoration. There we go. Which involved an increasing in the intensity of the surging. They found that there was no knowledge of ATR within SAS. The Scandinavian Scandinavian Airlines. They found that the surges loaded the engine so that it's... Stage one stature, state, stat, the engine failed. Yes. <laughs> what is that word? I have no idea. I've never seen it in my I've life. I've never seen it either. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> they found that the increase in engine power also caused the left-hand engine to start surging until two seconds after the right-hand engine, it failed in the same manner. Yep. Did that... Make sense? It made sense. Okay. Didn't make sense to me. <laughs> they found that in connection with the engine failures, titanium fires broke out in both engines and a fuel fire in the left-hand engine. Okay. The titanium fires went out spontaneously, and the fuel fire was extinguished by the first officer with the fire extinguisher system. Engine yes. fire extinguisher system. Not just any fire extinguisher system. The, the engine. one for the engine. <laughs> Can you imagine having someone try to go out there and they have a... Open up the door! (laughs) With a fire extinguisher? That would be pretty... They found after engine failure, the captain lost his EFIS, the engine flight instrument system. Electronic flight instrument (sighs) system. So close. (laughs) They found that when both engines had lost thrust, the aircraft was glided to an emergency landing. Yes. Because you don't have engines, your plane becomes a makeshift glider. Yep. 
they found the emergency malfunction checklist for the MD-80 did not include sufficient instruction regarding speed and flat position for approach and landing with MD-80 both engines unserviceable. Yeah, so when the both engines are out, it didn't have info on how to safely land the airplane. Any kind Which is of, terrible. Any dual engine failure is extremely rare, so I don't blame them for not having that procedure. But I also feel like... It should also be there just in case. I mean, even when the the Hudson plane crash happened, the yeah, dual engine failure was still extremely rare. Yes. And they still didn't have a procedure then. Yeah. I feel like, though, having conducted this podcast this long and seen many full engine failures, I feel like there should be one. Yeah. They found that the pilots made no distress signals. I'm assuming this is to the rest of the cabin. That or to ATC. Well, they did make a distress to ATC. Well, one, when they were crashing. Well, they told them that they had engine problems and that they were turning, which I would say is distress enough. I don't know. Either way, they should probably tell the cabin that, hey, um, prepare cabin for impact. Well, they, are little, they did. They were a little busy. But to tie more into the no distress signal thing, at least in the Mayday episode, they did depict at times that the radio went out when they lost power. Which makes sense because they Until lost they had the power. APU back on. I did not read anything about that in the report, so I don't know how accurate of a depiction that is. Well, as far as we know, they only made two radio calls, so I don't know if it really mattered. I don't know. I don't know. They found that shortly before impact with the ground, the aircraft collided with some trees, whereupon a major part of the right wing was torn off. They found that on impact with the ground, the fuselage was broken into three parts. Yep. They found extensive damage was caused to the cabin fittings. Overhead bins fell down, and a large number of bin doors had opened. It, it was crazy. Well, it, it, I mean, it happens. It, still, it would happen on a plane today. If you had a really, really, really hard, you know, impact with landing. something. Landing? Landing. Well, not just a landing, but an impact or a turbulence or something, it can cause the... It shouldn't cause them to fall off the ceiling, but it can cause the, the bins to open, which is why they're like, please be careful when you're opening the bins, and why when they have the seat belt side on you should be sitting in your seat with your seat belt on well i don't know about that because the cap the assistant captain was fine he was knocked unconscious he lived didn't he yeah but so his don't don't, bone don't wear your seat broken. belt okay you're gonna be you're gonna be fine okay <laughs> don't listen to brendan <laughs> if this there's anything you should take from this podcast it's don't listen to brendan <laughs> unless you want to go to, take a nap in the galley then the flight attendants will be totally okay with that. <laughs> They'll just let you lay down on the floor. Hey, guys, I know you're experiencing emergency, but I'm really tired. Can I just take take a, a, a lay here? They found three of the eight emergency exits could not be used for evacuation, but that's okay because several new ones were created. Yeah. <laughs> they just walked out the, the places of the plane that broke off. Probably more like jumped, but... Uh, it was pretty flush with the ground, though. Well, you got the baggage compartment underneath the... So you do have to kind of jump. Oh, I guess. Yeah. They found on impact with the ground, loads arose that, at least in the forward part of the cabin, exceeded certification requirements for the aircraft. Oh. <laughs> it crashed. They crashed. It crashed. Of course they exceeded the certification requirements for the aircraft. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> they found that all those on board survived, most without physical injury. 
One yep. passenger suffered a disabling back injury. So it sounds like at least one passenger was paralyzed. Yeah, that's what it yeah, they, like. they did have to be taken off from the emergency crew, which we will get here right now. They found the site of the accident was located from a helicopter after 20 minutes, and land rescue forces were at the location 10 minutes later. So about 30 minutes. 30 minutes, yeah. Yep. Total. They found transport to those on board was completed after about 3 hours and 30 minutes. And finally, they found a that a complete passenger list was available to rescue personnel after about five hours. I mean, that's, that's good. Kind of, you should have a manifest. I feel like that's kind of long, though, to have a manifest. Well, I mean, did they have one on board? Or did they have to get it from the airport? I don't know. I'm exactly. just glad these things are electronic now. Yes, because this yeah, was I mean, 1991. So Yes, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to get... I'm sure back then, 1991, that was a pretty probably pretty good for yeah. off-airport rescue. So. Correct. The causes of the accident verbatim. The accident was caused by SAS instructions and routines being inadequate to ensure that clear ice was removed from the wings of the aircraft prior to takeoff. Hence, the aircraft took off with clear ice on the wings. In connection with liftoff, the clear ice loosened and was ingested by the engines. The ice caused damage to the engine fan stages, which led to engine surges. The surges destroyed the engines. Contributory causes were, the pilots were not trained to identify and eliminate engine surging. An ATR, which was unknown within SAS, was activated and increased the engine power without the pilot's knowledge. Yeah. Short and sweet. That. On to the recommendations. This first set is from the Accident Investigation Board to the Swedish Civil Aviation Swedish Civil Aviation Administration regarding the DC-9-80 series. They recommend really recommended to arrange that airline companies have instructions and procedures to ensure that aircraft for which they are technically responsible do not take off with clear ice on their wings, removing clear ice from the wings. Thank what a you. concept. They recommend to seek the introduction of means to de- deactivate the ATR. Yes. So that they don't die. Which no one did Or at anyway. least the They don't cause don't... more damage yeah. to the engines. They don't... When the engines are surging, the plane doesn't just increase power without the pilots knowing. They recommended to seek the inclusion in emergency malfunction checklist of initial actions in case of engine surging as by heart items. To be regularly practiced in the simulator. So practicing... What to do when an engine surges. Bingo. And to not have to need the checklist in front of you to start the checklist. You should know the first couple items by heart. Yes. They recommended adding an emergency malfunction checklist in case of dual engine failure. Ha ha! Eventually that happened. It took a while. It did take a while. We'll actually be discussing that one in the not-too-distant future. Yep. They recommend to seek to make it possible for crew members to reach their emergency checklist from their emergency positions. Specifically the cabin crew. So yeah, they shouldn't sense. have to get up to go get their emergency checklists that they Which also have. makes sense. It should be like by their jump sheet. Jump sheet. <laughs> jump seat. Question. Do they also keep those on the... What are they called? The trolleys? Oh, the carts? Yeah. The, like, drinking... I highly doubt it. If you look at a trolley, they're very minimal. You can see everything, so I don't think there's a spot for it. Maybe there should be. 
Well, to be fair, they can't perform their emergency functions in the aisles, so they have to go back to their stations anyway, their emergency positions, because that's not that's fair. their emergency positions. Right. They recommend tightening requirements for fixing loose gallery equipment. <laughs> tightening restrictions? <laughs> Thank you. That was great. <laughs> They recommended rethinking having the cockpit door open during takeoff and landing. Yeah. Yeah, that's closed now. Thanks, 9-11. multiple other reasons, yeah. So people can't just come Obviously, into the cockpit. I wonder why they did that, though. Because, in this case... It helped. It helped. Well, them. in UA-232, it helped. But maybe it's because the person was not an authorized flight crew member oh so they did mention that in the mayday episode that the investigators questioned why he decided to go in the cockpit but praised his actions anyway yeah it's like maybe you shouldn't have done that but thank but you also, for doing thank that thank you for helping <laughs> he potentially saved everyone on board yes we don't know that for sure but potentially this next set of recommendations is from the accident investigation to further recommend the swedish civil aviation administration they recommend to ensure that SAS possesses a well-functioning system of quality insur- assurance. Not insurance. Assurance. <laughs> they should have insurance, too. But not for this. <laughs> they bought the general insurance. <laughs> they only had liability. <laughs> if you want great rates, get online, go to the general, general and save, save some time. time. They save or, some time, which is the general. Anyway. Or something like that. Christy will hand- handle this one. <laughs> They recommend that the Swedish Civil Aviation Administration work with the international community to redesign aircraft such that rear-mounted engines don't have as much potential for FOD damage. Which makes sense. Because if the engines were... Particularly caused by ice forming on aircraft. On the wings, this wouldn't have happened. Fun fact. Mm -hmm. They recommend to seek an international cooperation between civil aviation authorities a limitation of the possibilities of certifying new versions of older aircraft models without new certificate types. This is still kind of relevant. It sure is. With the 737. Lamax. Yeah. So limit the extent to which you can just crank out new versions of old models of aircraft without getting a new type certification. Right. Because then, like, you need to make sure it's airborne. Yes, and by maintaining enough of the previous model that you don't have to have a new type certification, you are also incorporating out potentially outdated technology. Right. So you really should just be making new, new models. Type certification models. Yes. For new aircraft. Ideally, yes. This is just a recommendation and it has not been implemented. Right. Simply because if you were to do that, it would cost so much money. Because you have to start money. from the ground up, basically, every time. Right, and pilots have to be trained on a whole new aircraft. And if you can, have them on the same certificate. To fly the aircraft. Because otherwise they'd only be able to fly that one aircraft instead of both. All of the, Correct. Multiple of the, in, the, in a series. Uh, it gets really confusing and stupid regulations and stuff like that. Anyway... They recommended to seek to ensure that safety information in aircraft operated in international traffic by Scandinavian air- airline companies is also given in one of the Scandinavian languages. So they can read it? 
Well, my guess is so the safety briefing. Oh, so people understand it? Yes. That's yes. Say it in multiple languages. From what I understood is that they when they're given the crash instructions, the bracing instructions, they were given in both English and Swedish. By I guess maybe not for the initial briefing. briefing. Or maybe that they were praising that yes, you gave it in multiple languages, we should make this the standard. Or maybe, yeah. They recommended to seek the development of better routines for making passenger lists available in the event of accidents. So that, I guess that five hours was pretty pretty long. Long. And now it's a moot point because you have pass electronic passenger manifests that can yep. literally be sent from anywhere. So we can conclusively say that that recommendation has been implemented. Yes. yes. Next recommendation is for the Swedish National Rescue Service Board. Mm. Recommend to ensure that the planning for rescue operations following air accidents in the vicinity of major airports be improved to and in sh- encourage regular practical training for such operations. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, and I think we've talked about this on previous episodes, that rescue crews in the vicinity of airports regularly undergo training should anything happen in the immediate vicinity of the airport. Right. There are a couple things from the Mayday episode that I do want to include, either as not-so-fun facts or as incredibly pertinent. So eventually, crews were trained on the ATR system. Thank you, I guess. Clear ice procedures were upgraded. Stairs for the mechanics were implemented into the detection system for clear ice, and one of the requirements is you must touch the wing with your hand. Yes. The first officer, after recovering from his injuries, did go on and continue to fly. The captain, however, after much therapy, was unable to trust the airplane in simulations. And so he ended his aviation career after this accident. About 90% of pilots, according to Mayday, are able to continue flying after an accident with the right counseling. And he just fell into that 10% that couldn't. It happens. He does not regret it. He was interviewed for the episode, and he equated it to a romantic breakup with the aviation part of his life, where it saddened him greatly, but at the same time, he doesn't regret not being able to do that anymore. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, that was... Scandinavian Airlines Flight... 751. Thank you. I was going to say 173. That wasn't right. 751. Thanks, everybody, for listening, as always. Thank you for Marie for recommending this flight go to patreon buy some merch it's pretty sweet merch it's pretty sweet it's got logos on it and and stuff and words and words (laughs) brendan's also not just saying that we did get him merch so so i'm an active participant a little biased so (laughs) maybe if you're cool enough we'll send you some free merch if you join patreon if you join patreon you get a lot of free merch if you join patreon Mm mm-hmm All right, friends, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Brendan and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.